So welcome to tonight's session of the Religions and the Practice of Peace Colloquium on Buddhist Responses to Climate Change, co-sponsored by the Buddhist Ministry Initiative at Harvard Divinity School. I'd like to start off by expressing thanks to many people, especially to our guest speakers, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi and Dr. Julie Nelson, for being here with us this evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I want to thank the Buddhist Ministry Initiative for its co-sponsorship and support for tonight's event, to the El Hebri Foundation for its support of this year's uh, RPP Colloquium Series, and to the Reverend Karen uh, Vickers-Budney and Al Budney. Um, uh, Karen is a MDiv alum here from uh, 91, and uh, Al is an MBA from uh, the Business School. Um, uh, thank you so much for your generous support of our colloquium and our uh, RPP. So wonderful to have you. Thank you. Um, we'd also like to thank uh, the faculty, fellows, alumni, and students of the RPP Working Group who are bringing expertise from schools and programs right across the university. Uh, thank you for that. To all of you scholars, peace builders, members of the public, people with real expertise and good hearts in this area, Thank you for joining us from all over the uh, Boston area. And as always, our dedicated RPP students and volunteers who do so much to coordinate these events for us and help us run everything smoothly. So thanks, everyone. And thanks again to Leslie Hood uh, in the background doing many, many things. One of the central realizations that prompted our founding of the RPP initiative um, to serve as a permanent hub at Harvard University and beyond for cross-disciplinary engagement, scholarship, and practice on religious and spiritual resources for sustainable peace is the rather sobering realization that in this 21st century, we've arrived at a new stage in human history, a stage of unprecedented human interdependence where the scale of the global challenges we confront will demand an unprecedented level of human cooperation to address. As Thich Nhat Hanh put it rather starkly, our choices as a human family are now two, coexistence or co-non-existence. Whether we consider the problems of intractable violence, the threat of nuclear weapons, systemic discrimination, lack of access to education, or endemic poverty, it is clear that we will be able to surmount them in an effective and sustainable way only by taking a new, more holistic approach, an approach in which we give serious attention to the spiritual and ethical dimensions, as well as to the structural and institutional dimensions of the problems and solutions we're trying to find. To bring about real and lasting improvements for the benefit of our own and future generations, we will need as a human family in all of our diversity and complexity to collaborate in exploring the resources that can help us undertake these momentous tasks. And not least, the ideals and the wisdom, the energies and the disciplines of our spiritual and cultural traditions. This will entail our welcoming explicit discussion of these kinds of wisdom resources into our discourse in all our domains, from education to policy, to economics, and creating spaces to listen deeply and to learn from one another across our traditions and across our disciplines. 
This must become a new modus operandi for us at institutions of higher learning like this one, that we prepare the next generations of leaders for our world as well as for each one of us individually as global citizens. So as we come together for these RPP colloquium sessions to explore spiritual and ethical resources for enhancing human flourishing, we ask that all of you here and those whom these sessions reach later, we ask you to reflect seriously on how you might make use of these insights in your respective spheres of influence, from your families to your professional settings, and doing your part to contribute to a more humane and harmonious future. I was down at a conference in Florida over the weekend um, on uh, international human rights and um, uh, trying to make uh, illegal aggression a war crime. And the person convening it, the 97-year-old Ben Ferenc, said, uh, as his parting shot says, you can all do something. Uh, so if 97-year-olds can do something, we can do something. So tonight we're fortunate to have an opportunity to focus on how resources from the Buddhist tradition might help us address one of the most pressing issues of our time, an issue perhaps more than any other, highlights both the inescapable reality of our human interdependence and the inescapable responsibility that this interdependence imposes upon us. That is the issue of climate change. We're grateful to Professor uh, Charles Hallisey, who will be our moderator tonight, for suggesting this topic and to both him and to Jeff Sewell, lecturer on the practice of peace at the Divinity School and chairman of the Peace Appeal Foundation, for inviting our guest speakers and for all their work in putting this session together. So thank you, uh, uh, Jeff and, and Charlie. So I'll introduce uh, Professor Charles Hallisey and then he will um, run everything from there. Um, uh, so Professor Hallisey joined the faculty of Divinity at Harvard Divinity School in 2007-8 after teaching at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. He is part of the Buddhist Ministry Initiative here at Harvard Divinity School, with much of his teaching focusing on the reading of Buddhist scriptures. His research interests center on Buddhist ethics and in Theravada Buddhism in Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia generally. Last year, he published this wonderful new translation of the Theragatha, the poems of the first Buddhist women, this is a great read, um, so buy it, read it, and, and um, in fact, buy all of the Murti Classical Library series. Uh, they're beautiful volumes, and you, people will come into your home and say, wow. <laughs> people are so educated. But this is a, these poems are, are beautiful, so please do read them. Um, uh, over two millennia old. So with that, I'm going to uh, hand over to, um, uh, uh, to my uh, colleague and friend, Charlie, who will introduce our speakers for this evening. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Dean Hampton. Uh, I will say that I'm looking forward to the day that the Murti Classical Library of India is in the background of The Simpsons, the way that the Loeb Library was <laughs> uh, as part of uh, the apparatus of humor. Now, I'd like to open our time together tonight by quoting from the opening paragraphs of The Time to Act is Now, a Buddhist declaration on climate change. They will make clear why a session on climate change is rightly part of this multi-year series on religion 
religions and the practice of peace. Dean Hempton expressed the ideas, but perhaps we can't be reminded of them enough. So the declaration says, it opens. Today, we live in a time of great crisis, confronted by the gravest challenge that humanity has ever faced, the ecological consequences of our own collective karma. The scientific consensus is overwhelming. Human activity is triggering environmental breakdown on a planetary scale. Major reports from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the United Nations, the European Union, and the International Union for Conservation of Nature agree that without a collective change of direction, dwindling supplies of water, food, and other resources could create famine conditions, resource battles, and mass migration by mid-century, perhaps by 2030, according to the UK's chief scientific advisor. We're already having a taste of this future in terms of the, the human disaster in Syria, which is connected to the drought in Syria that is triggered by climate change. We have a brief window of opportunity to take action, to preserve humanity from imminent disaster, and to assist the survival of the many diverse and beautiful forms of life on Earth. Future generations and the other species that share the biosphere with us have no voice to ask for our compassion, wisdom, and leadership. We must listen to their silence. We must be their voice, too, and act on their behalf. We must listen. We must speak. We must act. We must, however, do all three of these, fully and ever aware that as Pope Francis's recent encyclical on caring for our common home made so clear, we do not have different problems of climate change, of social injustices and extreme inequalities, of war and the structural violence of racism, sexism, and other forms of human oppression. We have one problem now. As Pope Francis said today, However, we have to realize that a true ecological approach always becomes a social approach. It must integrate questions of justice in debates on the environment so as to hear both the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. This reminds us that we cannot attend to anything about religions and the practices of peace without attending to the destruction of the environment and climate change, without attending to increasing social inequality, and without intending to persisting structural violences. Tonight, however, we are here to listen and we are here to speak to each other. But as we do so, even as we do so carefully and generously, we should be mindful that, as the Declaration said, future generations and the other species that share the biosphere with us have no voice to ask for our compassion, wisdom, and leadership. Let us listen to them tonight, too. Let us listen to their silence carefully and generously. Tonight, we are here to listen and to speak to each other. But as we do so, even as we do so carefully and generously, we should be mindful that listening and speaking, however carefully and however generously, is not enough. The time to act is now. I believe it is out of this sense of urgency that our two speakers, so readily accepted our invitation to come to be with us tonight, even though their commitments are many and their schedules are full. I'm very, very grateful to them for agreeing to come. 
So let me then turn to introduce our speakers. The Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi is a Buddhist monk, an American from New York City. He obtained a BA from Brooklyn College in 1966 and a PhD in philosophy from Claremont Graduate School in 1972. After completing his university studies, he traveled to Sri Lanka, where he received novice ordination in 1972 and full ordination in 1973. He lived in Asia for 24 years, primarily in Sri Lanka. A Buddhist scholar and translator of Buddhist texts, he is also the founder of Buddhist Global Relief, a nonprofit supporting hunger relief, sustainable agriculture, and education in countries suffering from chronic poverty and malnutrition. Venerable Bodhi is a member of the Buddhist Climate Action Network and a spiritual ambassador to the Our Voices Climate Campaign. He lives and teaches at Chuangyan Monastery near Carmel, New York. Dr. Julie Nelson is professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, a senior research fellow at the Global Development and Environment Institute at Tufts University and a Dharma teacher in the Boundless Way Zen School. She is both an empirical researcher, publisher, publishing in mainstream journals such as Econometrica and the Journal of Economic Surveys, and a wide, widely published critic of conventional views concerning the relationship between economics and ethics. Dr. Nelson received her PhD degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1986. She is an active member of feminist economics, ecological economics, and social economic networks, and lives in a cooperative household in Arlington, Massachusetts. Some of her works relevant to the Religions and Practice of Peace initiative include Poisoning the Well, or How Economic Theory Damages Moral Imagination, Husbandry, A Feminist Reclamation of Masculine Responsibility for Care. An article is dismissing the environmental caution, the manly thing to do, gender and the economics of environmental protection. Ethics and the Economist, What Climate Change Demands of Us. The Relational Economy, in a volume entitled Ethical Principles in Economic Transformation, a Buddhist Approach. Does Profit-Seeking Rule Out Love, Evidence or Not, from Economics and Law? And the Relational Firm, a Buddhist and Feminist Analysis. With that, I turn it over and ask Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi to speak. Good evening, everybody. Um, first, I would like to thank the Harvard Divinity School for in, and the Religion and the Practice of Peace Initiative for inviting me to participate in this extremely important program this evening. I entitled my presentation, A Buddhist Diagnosis of the Climate Crisis. And the basic outline here, I originally prepared back in 2009 and I've been invited to participate, not in the COP conference that was taking place in Copenhagen, but we had a little sideline conference of spiritual teachers and practitioners going along the sidelines of the main conference. 
And so I decided to use the basic template of the Buddha's teaching of the Four Noble Truths in order to investigate and try to analyze the climate crisis. Okay, that's what I was looking for. <clears throat> okay, so I start, <clears throat> I start off with the counterpart to the first noble truth, which here I call the ecological truth of suffering. And I've taken each of the main ecological truths, each of the main four ecological truths, and I've analyzed each one into several levels, several levels of investigation, several levels of going from the coarser level to the subtler level. And so I start off here by taking what we call, what I call the four incipient catastrophes. So these are things that can take place if effective action is not taken. In fact, already we see the seeds of these developments already starting to manifest. <laughs> so maybe it seems a little unrealistic to bring this up in the middle of winter, but the first of these that I have listed is what I call unbearable heat waves, in which large tracts of the earth become uninhabitable, and there are massive die-offs, not only of other species, but even of human beings already the heat waves that are sweeping over the world are claiming perhaps millions of lives and the number is likely to increase exponentially as time goes on. So we have unbearable heat waves, we have floods, violent hurricanes, hurricanes becoming even more violent in which whole communities are, being, are to be destroyed. Then we have the melting of the ice sheets Already this is taking place in the Antarctic, where the ice sheets in the western Antarctic are breaking off the land ice sheets, and that will lead to rising sea levels. And as sea levels rise, then the consequence will be that island nations will be submerged beneath the water, coastal lands will be flooded with water, and even whole cities along the coast will be lost, will be <coughs> swallowed up by the sea. And then we have changes taking place in the oceans as a result of carbon emissions. And as the oceans absorb the carbon dioxide, then they become increasingly acidified. And as a result of increasing acidification, the species that live under the, under the sea will die off. Um, the coral reefs will become destroyed and begin to die off and even the reproduction patterns of fish will start to change. There'll also be warmer temperatures leading to the deaths of whole species of sea life and changing currents which will bring about changes in weather patterns. I don't want to dwell in too much length on this because this is part of common knowledge which you can easily access if you um, consult some of the major websites dealing with the phenomena of climate change. So this I take to be the coarsest level. Then when we go down to another level, we have those 
current trends, which are, I say, which are portending the approach of the factors that I mentioned under 1A. This is what I call the four vanishing foundations of human civilization. And so we have changes taking place to the land, whereby soil erosion increases as we have warmer, hotter weather, extended droughts, soil becomes, um, soil erosion increases, um, droughts take place, desertification increases, and as I mentioned earlier, the sea begins to encroach upon the land. Then we have water shortages, again because of the hotter weather, and the overuse of the aquifers, the exhaustion of the aquifers to grow crops, um, so that we have the Olagala Aquifer in the middle of the United States. It's now being overexploited, and aquifers around the world are being overdrawn to grow the crops. Then, uh, extremely dangerous are the vanishing glaciers high in the mountains, because it's the glaciers in the Himalayas that provide the water that feeds into the rivers, that provides the water for crop cultivation in Southeast Asia, China, India, in other mountain regions, provides the glaciers in other mountain regions, provides the water that will feed Pakistan and other parts of Asia. In South America, the Andes glaciers provide the water that feeds the population of the Andean countries, and in the United States, glaciers of the Rocky Mountains that provides the water that's so essential to California agriculture. Okay, and so as there are soil erosion, water shortages, we have short, a diminution in the food supply, crop failures, lower grain yields, loss of fisheries, and the degradation of land by monocrops, by the industrial model of agriculture. And then as climate change sweeps over larger parts of the world, as Charles mentioned in his introduction, one of the consequences is social instability. As access to resources, as resources become more and more scarce, then there will come conflicts between people of different countries, different communities, over these vanishing resources. So this will lead to regional wars, which can be sparked or intensified by ethnic and religious factors. There'll be mass migration already taking place from, as a result of the wars that are taking place in the Middle East. But as Charles mentioned, one of the factors contributing to that intensification of hostilities is in fact climate change and the loss of, of fertile soil. And then as social instability increases, then there's the danger of failed states and tyrannic tyrants taking control of unstable governments. Okay, so we have the four vanishing foundations of human civilization. Okay, so now those are sort of manifestations of the ecological truth of suffering. And now we start seeking what I call the ecological truth of the origin of suffering, probing into the roots of the crisis. And so we have first at the grossest level, what I call four pervasive global threats that are causing 
these vanishing foundations, that are causing these foundations of human civilization to vanish. So we have population growth, poverty, and poverty and population growth sort of feed into each other and intensify each other. Then we have the heating, global warming, the actual heating of the Earth's atmosphere, and then the destruction of natural ecosystems and biodiversity loss, which is already occurring at such a rate that some commentators are calling what's taking place now the sixth great extinction. Okay, so now, still within the ecological truth of the origin of suffering, we have the four sustaining causes of these global threats. Okay, so one of them is the dependency of the global economy on fossil fuels. Fossil fuels used to generate electricity for agriculture, transportation, construction, heating, and so forth. Then the reliance on fossil fuels is intimately connected to the free market economic system, which exalts, I say that it exalts short-term profit and other quick returns above long-term economic stability, and it allows corporate domination of political systems and the mass media. So we call this the triumvirate of domination, whereby at the top of this triumvirate are the powerful global corporations, which are now a wider and wider international range, linking up together to form an international consortium. And they control the political systems, especially the case in this country, and also the mass media. We'll look at some of the consequences of this as we go along. What's not well recognized is the contribution of the industrial model of agriculture to climate change. It's not only the use of fossil fuels to generate electricity and transportation, but industrial agriculture, according to some estimates, is said to be responsible for 30 to 32% of global carbon emissions. And then, what keeps everything turning is this reckless consumerist culture in which the primary aim in, into which people are acculturated is the idea that the good of life is to consume more and more material commodities, and in order to maintain the high consumerist lifestyle, or to at least to rise up to something that emulates a high consumerist lifestyle, people have to take out debt, which binds them into a repetitive cycle of taking out more debt in order to repay older debts. Okay, but now I move to a more sort of nuanced Buddhist investigation of what are the sustaining causes but what are the underlying causes of these causes that I have under group B? And here I bring out what I call the four inner roots of those causes. And this is based on the Buddhist principle that mind is the cause of good and evil. And so here I've laid out four factors, not the traditional triad of greed, hatred, and delusion, 
But I start with greed, so we have the greed of corporations, of financial institutions for ever-expanding profits, and also the greed or ambition of politicians to maintain their, their hold on power by accepting the donations from the fossil fuel corporations and yielding to the lobbying influence of the fossil fuel corporations in order to continue to receive, to, to maintain their hold on power. We see this in the Republican Congress, for example, where just about every congressman, Republican congressman, denies the reality of global warming. Why is that? It's not because they've investigated the scientific facts, but pretty much because they are bought out by the fossil fuel corporations and related interests. Okay, but in order to keep the ordinary people distracted, this is the way the political system works, you have to keep, uh, you have to keep their attention riveted elsewhere. And it seems to me that the way this is done is by planting in the general population feelings of fear and anxiety. So there's anxiety over jobs. If we change the, the methods of generating energy, you're going to lose your jobs, it's going to crash the economy, we'll all turn into paupers. And then there's the fear of terrorism. It's not that there isn't a real threat from terrorists, but this threat gets, I would say, expanded, it gets multiplied and intensified in order to keep people distracted. Another contributing psychological factor is arrogance. This is the sense of what we call American exceptionalism, the idea that America is a special nation, that we are entitled to, you, to consume as much energy as we want, as we need, to drive high fuel-consuming cars, SUVs, that we can turn on the lights, leave them on as long as we want, because we, and we have the entitlement to take over parts of the world where we need to increase our resources, the means of generating energy. And so we have a scorn for people, values, and cultures of the traditional world. Okay, then going along with this, sort of underlying all of this, is ignorance, which is this policy of what I call obfuscation and distraction, that is denying the truth of climate change and keep, keeping people's minds distracted with popular entertainment, with the constant rapid shift of information, news, which is usually cheap, and superficial news so that people don't dig deeply and inquire into the truth of things. And even, the, I say, the mainstream media often don't connect the dots when we have unusual weather events. They just say, oh, the weather is completely unreliable, unpredictable, but that is the nature of the weather, rather than connecting the dots and pointing out that all of these different strange phenomena that are occurring are occurring precisely because the climate is being changed. Okay, then, this is the usual Buddha psychological method of analysis. By looking at specific psychological factors that might be responsible for the crises, the social and political crises that we're facing today. 
But it seems to me that what has taken place now is that these psychological roots have taken on what is called structural and system, systemic manifestations or embodiments. And so underlying, as I say, or sustaining these psychological factors is a particular deep meta-program or the source code which underlies them. And this is what I call an ideological cancer. And this involves a metaphysic, which I call the metaphysic of personal atomism. That this is the assumption that each person is a separate atomistic entity whose basic needs are materialistic and egotistical and whose relations with others are essentially competitive, aimed at domination through the objectification of other persons and of nature. Okay. Following from this metaphysic, there is an, believe it or not, we call this an ethic in the sense of a code for conduct. And this ethic holds that rational behavior means seeking to maximize one's own private self-interest. And so the consequence of this is that nature becomes commodified, seen merely as a source of natural resources, and other people are also commodified, turned into people who are to be, whose labor is to be exploited, and who are to be imposed upon or regarded as sources of consumption. And so when you take this ethic and then put it into practice, what I call the application of the program is the use of money to generate ever-increasing returns on investments. The Canadian social philosopher John McMurty says that the goal of the economy is multiplying the growth of transnational money sequences at ever higher velocities and volumes with no life limits tolerated. And the consequence of this is the pursuit of infinite growth and the colonization of all other domains of human value, natural value, social value, aesthetic, intellectual value, and even spiritual value by the quest for multiplying returns on investment. In effect, the commodification and financialization of the entire world. And so the critical key to decoding this whole system, this is what the next heading, and that is that the pathology of the whole system arises because monetary value, which is originally and by essence of instrumental value, is exalted to the position of ultimate value and so all the other domains of intrinsic life value, natural, human, and spiritual, are colonized, subjugated, and turned into instruments for maximizing monetary value. Okay, so now we come to the third ecological truth, which is that of the cessation of suffering. And that is what I call saving the earth and redeeming human civilization. That means to avoid the factors that I mentioned under 1A and 1B, we have to promptly and seriously address 2A, B, C, and D. 
And that takes us to the ecological noble eightfold path, which is <laughs> rather pretentiously presented as a way to, set, to save the earth and redeem human civilization. Okay, so we start off as the Buddha does with, we have right view and right intention. So right view is clearly understanding the dangers of escalating carbon emissions and recognizing that human activity and human policies are responsible for climate change, not natural variations in the intensity of the sun and so forth. And then also understanding and explaining the benefits of a transformed economy, social order and culture, especially the adoption of green technologies. And then I say that this encourages enlightened self-interest. Of course, along with this, we have the ethical factor of awakening a sense of global, global human justice through understanding the impact of climate change on communities around the world, especially in the global south. Because we in the global north are the main consumers of fossil fuels but the impact strikes more heavily and more brutally upon the peoples, especially of South Asia, Africa, Latin America. And then the moral factor, the contributing factor, is inspiring solidarity based on universal loving kindness and compassion. This is enlightened altruism. Okay, then we have four steps to eliminate the obstructions. This, these this constitutes right action and right effort together. That is breaking the grip of corporations on politicians by limiting the role of money in politics through lobbying and electoral election contributions. Breaking the grip of corporations over the media by stricter regulation of the media and by breaking up media empires. I'm going to go through these rather quickly because I don't want to overstep my time limit. Reforming the political system so that we have publicly financed elections so that politicians don't become dependent upon uh, donations from generous corporations who expected to have their, their preferred interests enacted by the politicians once they're in power and give real opportunity to independence and third and fourth part and fifth party candidates. So we'll have multiple political parties with multiple points of view and establish greater power balance in international bodies like the United Nations so that the traditional countries have a more prominent voice in decision making. Okay, some pragmatic solutions. We have mitigation, adaptation, resilience, and then change, changing over from the growth economy to a steady state economy, one that's governed by the principle of sufficiency, which places contentment and qualitative growth over the ideal of infinite growth with endless consumption and endless destruction of the environment and over-extraction and exploitation of natural resources. And then cultivating what I call spiritual mindfulness. This brings together right mindfulness and right concentration through respecting natural value, that is, 
promoting reverence for the earth, honoring nature of the species, and restoring a sense of the sacredness of the cosmos, restoring human value through the affirmation of human dignity, celebration of human unity and equality, and implementing new models of governance rooted in what I call intersubjective solidarity, whereby we recognize others around the world, whether here or abroad, as being subjective centers of experience rather than objects to be reduced to producers, consumers, exploited, and discarded when they're useless to our purposes. And then rediscovering aesthetic and intellectual value so that we place, we value other things besides economic production and consumption. So that we value leisure, less work time, longer paid vacations, and then seeking ultimate value or cultivating higher consciousness beyond greed and fear. And then we actualize the goal, which is, again, a bit idealistic, but at least we can be moving in that direction towards peace, happiness, and shared prosperity on Earth. Okay, thank you very much for your attention, and we'll have more to discuss. decided to go PowerPoint free this evening. <laughs> uh, I wanted to uh, thank the Religions and Practice of Peace organizers and Harvard Divinity School for inviting me here. And I certainly have to start by joining in uh, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi's concern and alarm about the climate crisis uh, and other crises facing our society and our world and joined for the calls and urgent action that we heard in the introduction and in his talk. We have a pressing moral obligation to do what we can to receive the suffering of all beings on the planet now and for those future beings that are not here to express their views. Our hearts yearn to make things better. And clearly much of the climate change disaster is caused by economic activity. If you graph carbon dioxide emissions and industrial output over a long period of time, the graphs are basically the same. They go up geomet you know, geometrically right along with each other. The development of large-scale fossil fuel burning industries was accompanied in Western societies by the rise of large corporations, global markets, and a rising emphasis on consumption as a source of well-being. Great wealth has been created but this wealth has been very unequally distributed and has often come at the cost of environmental and social sustainability. It is abundantly clear, as has just been explained, that we can't go on with business as usual. People and other sentient beings are already feeling the disruptive effects of a set of historical and social developments that as a whole have taken, taken far too little account of the effect of our production and consumption activities on the rest of nature. So we urgently need to change how our economies work. But how? One popular idea, which I'll spend a, a couple minutes describing, 
Um, one popular idea, including among many Buddhist social activists, is what I'll call the replacement economy approach. Uh, you can find this uh, spelled out very clearly in works like David Loy's chapter, uh, The Three Poisons Institutionalized in his uh, Money, Sex, or Karma book. Uh, there's a book by Joel Magnuson called Mindful Economics. Um, uh, some of it crops up in some of Ken Jones' work, New Social Face of Buddhism, uh, various edited volumes, Mindfulness in the Marketplace, other places. I've seen this story uh, repeated. Uh, I, I chose the uh, phrase, small is beautiful, uh, in my title for this evening, which is about beyond small is beautiful. Um, because that goes back to the 1973 book by E.F. Schumacher that was very influential in my thinking, uh, both uh, raising a Buddhist critique and talking about issues of different uh, economies. Now, what I'm calling the replacement economy approach uh, sees our environmental and other ills as the inevitable outcome of values, principles, and institutions that are of the very nature of our current economic system. Other uh, problems are said to be caused by market values, profit maximization, global corporations, consumerism, growth imperative, uh, and so on. Clearly, then, according to this story, in order to stop the suffering, we need to dismantle the current system and create a brand new replacement. The new economy must be based on values, principles, and institutions that are radically different from, and in fact, diametrically opposed to those that characterize the old system. It should be based on values of compassion and cooperation, the principle of mindful independence, the principle of sufficiency, and on institutions that will be, for the most part, uh, more local, uh, democratic, and nonprofit. Nothing less than a wholesale change of people's hearts and the structure of the politics, uh, economy, politics, and society uh, will do. I'd like to offer a different perspective. There's a lot going for that story, but I think it's got a couple problems. I'm afraid that from my viewpoint as an economist and as a student of Zen, uh, there are some issues. First, rather than being truly radical, it actually buys into some very old stories about the nature of our current economic system. Second, it's also at odds with what I've come to feel are some very basic and very important insights of Buddhism about ourselves and the world. So that's what I'll be talking about this evening. First, economics. I initially began studying economics as an undergraduate with the idea that an understanding of it uh, might help me be able to do something about global poverty and hunger. What I was taught in college and graduate school was consistent with how those who look, who have this replacement economy story, characterize what we're in now. That is, what I learned in economics class was that people in our current economy are driven by self-interest. Firms are entities whose essence is to maximize profits. Individuals maximize satisfaction from consumption. Markets are arm's length impersonal mechanisms. Uh, and GDP growth is a measure of, of economic health. Uh, I also had to learn a lot of math. Uh, it's taken for granted that the understanding of the mechanisms and the drives of this economy require physics-like techniques of analysis. That might be our first hint that something's a little fishy. 
But perhaps what drew me further into the study of economics was the same thing that later drew me to Zen, a tendency to entertain doubt and try to look at the world afresh with a don't-know mind. And so I became curious about how economists figured out that self-interest, competition, profit maximization, and so on were fundamental laws or principles underlying economic activity. All that I or anyone else can directly observe are specific, concrete, historically contingent, emergent realities, as Buddha should know. So how did economists get a handle on the invisible, intangible, essential, persistent nature that underlies uh, this system, or creates this system? Well, turns out economists don't like to talk much about where our assumptions have come from. So my explorations took me into a number of outside areas, including uh, contemporary corporate law and the history and philosophy of science. And what I discovered is that economists made this stuff up, <laughs> really. In Zen practice, we're encouraged over and over again to be intimate with what is actually in front of us and develop a healthy suspicion about the stories we endlessly create on top of what we see. This whole story about the inherent nature of our current system lies squarely in that realm of story. Let's look at just one example, the common belief that corporations maximize profits. You hear it all the time in the media, everywhere. The common belief that profit maximization is mandated by statute, by law, is factually erroneous. Corporate charters state that the purpose of a business is to run a business. You won't find a word in them about profits or returns to shareholders, really. Uh, most corporations are chartered in Delaware. Go look up the Delaware law, what it says, what it says is in a charter. You will not find profits or return to shareholders in there anywhere. Nor do shareholders regularly enforce corporate, uh, regularly force corporate executives to act in their interests by bringing lawsuits against them, as is sometimes asserted. In these so-called share, uh, so uh, shareholder derivative suits, the courts regularly apply what's called the business judgment rule. And that pretty much leaves decision-making to the executives. I can talk about examples later on, but I'm not going to go into the details right now. Nor in many cases does intense market competition in goods markets or capital markets force companies to pursue every last dollar of profits. Large companies, large parts of the economy are dominated by relatively few firms. They don't have to worry about a whole lot about competition. Many firms fund expansion from retained earnings. They don't have to worry about raising capital. A lot of firms have a much wider degree of choice than you might believe. Now, if this all comes to surprise to you, I can give you lots of references afterwards. We also have a legal uh, uh, expert in the front row. Or I invite you to check it out. Those are actually things that have been made, made up. So how did economists figure this out? The idea that firms are always running after the last dollar of profits was also not derived by observation of actual businesses. Some businesses are more oriented towards innovation or expansion. Amazon.com didn't make profits for first 15 years or something like that. It just grew. Profits were not the point. Uh, some want to maximize CEO compensation. 
That's a big fight right now within the, uh, the corporate world. Others focus on preserving a tradition, serving a community, providing a beneficial quality product. And still others are quite a mess and don't seem to effectively pursue any goal at all. <laughs> if you've been in an organization, you know these kinds of, of things. So that phrase, profit maximization, came from economists. It came from economists because economists want to pretend that we're physicists. Maximization comes from Newtonian physics. You have a function. You take the second derivative. You find where it's uh, doing this kind of thing. You find the top of that. It's all calculus. It's all like physics. Profit maximization means finding the top of that mathematical function. Economists want to be like physicists and not like those low-status people, sociologists, who study human beings. Um, Larry Summers, when he was president here, was quoted in the Boston Globe as saying, sociologists just aren't as smart as economists. I mean, he often said what a lot of economists are thinking. Um, so the dogma of profit maximization is very useful to economists because it allows us to analyze the firm as that very simple entity with one goal. This is much easier than dealing with corporations as complex social organizations involving many different people who have to figure out how to work together. It avoids noticing that their leaders and workers may have a multiplicity of goals. It avoids having to realize that corporations have different cultures and histories. But why has that profit maximization story had so much staying power? Part of the explanation for its popularity and staying power, I think, clearly has to do with power. The standard story in its obfuscating wall of mathematics uh, can be used to justify greed and to silence opposition. Well, you just don't understand the economy because you haven't you know, gotten the PhD and done all the math um, sort of arguments. But I, I want to point out, at least in passing, that there is another layer, a gendered layer, to the explanation as well. What economists chose to notice in economic activity uh, were elements of competition, self-interest, autonomy, rationality, precision, mechanism. But there's a lot of other stuff going on out there. What did economists choose to ignore in a real-world economic activity? Cooperation, other interest, connection, emotion, complexity, sociality. Notice that all of the stuff on the included list have an aura of masculinity and toughness about them, while the latter seem more soft and more feminine. In a sexist culture, they're easily dismissed as of lesser importance. When I went to graduate school, I was one of four women in a class of 34. Um, it's said that fish don't notice they're swimming in water. And most of my male graduate school colleagues did not notice the masculine character of the discipline as it was created. It's also worth noticing, as long as I'm commenting on this, that the core theories of the discipline treat the economic contributions of nature and the economic contributions of uh, women's uh, traditional work in the home in an exactly parallel fashion. In the model, natural resources just show up on the scene when needed for production, require no maintenance, and disappear when no longer needed. Issues of resource depletion, degradation, or waste disposal do not appear in the core theory. Really, there's capital labor, there are no resources, no energy. Workers, likewise, just show up and disappear. 
the traditional work of women in raising children, maintaining workers, and caring for the elderly also do not appear in the core theory. Both natural and caring processes have been assumed to go on infinitely, effortlessly, and silently in the background. And that isn't gonna last. Um, profit maximization was one thing invented by economists, but not the only thing. I could go on all night, but just let me mention a few additional mythical creations. Uh, first, a free market has never existed and never could exist. Markets are totally intertwined with government and other forms of social regulation. Neoliberal or market fundamentalist doctrines are in practice mostly ideological smokescreens for power grabs. Uh, there's a lot of preaching of free trade going on. New York Times this morning uh, uh, ran an article about uh, concern about the Chinese buying up California high technology firms. Free trade is great if it means US companies buying other elsewhere. If it means Chinese companies buying here, maybe we don't want that much capital freedom going on, right? It's very strategic how that ideology of free markets is used. Imperatives to grow are also a fiction. Certainly there are consumerist values among the values going around a lot these days, uh, but the degree to which they're displayed in capitalist societies is historically and culturally variable. In fact, there are many different capitalisms, depending on where and when you look, not just one. Uh, economists say that self-interest and, and competition are of the essence of capitalism, but cooperation and trust are also essential to any economic system. If you can't cooperate with your suppliers or coworkers, how can you get anything done? If you can't trust who you're dealing with, how can you do simple buying and selling? Is greed the top thing on your mind when you're arranging to buy childcare? A regard for ethics is absolutely required for sustained business and marketing functioning. Modern capitalist economies have probably functioned as well as they have so far, only to the extent that many people in their daily lives have not bought into the greed is good mentality. So to recap this first point about the economy, I think the replacement economy approach that prescribes replacing the current economy, characterized by bad principles, by a new economy, characterized by good principles, has got its facts wrong. It's made a category error, or what Alfred North Whitehead would call a fallacy of misplaced concreteness. It's taken abstract ideas about the economy, as invented by economists, and confused them with the actual current economy. If we fully recognize this category error, we should change the way we talk about the economy. You've probably seen terms like corporatization and market values, which on the face of it refer to, seem to refer to actual corporations and markets, used as shorthand for the abstract values of narrow financial interest, greed, shallowness, treating people as objects, and general evilness. I would advocate a little modification there. I would advocate shortening corporatization to ratization when referring to dehumanizing and perverse actions. Corporations can and do also choose otherwise. Acting like a rat is an option, not a mandate. And instead of calling greed a corporate value or a market value, 
we could call it a rat value. Not every market transaction is motivated by greed. Acting like a rat is an option, not a mandate. Not only, by the way, should we protest the ratization of businesses, uh, we should protest the ratization of nonprofits, uh, including universities, as well. Just as a for-profit corporate charter doesn't guarantee evilness, a nonprofit corporate charter certainly does not guarantee goodness. Furthermore, and this is the point I want to stress, if we don't move away from the fallacy of confusing abstract values with actual phenomena, I'm afraid we actually encourage ratization. First, assuming that corporations must act like rats gives corporate leaders an ethical free pass if they want one. You can always just say, the system made me do it. I had no choice. We give them a get out of jail free card. It also serves to help it become a self-fulfilling prophecy. When the fallacy is repeated over and over in economics classrooms, in the media, and even in Buddhist social activist writing, it encourages us to believe that greedy opportunistic behavior is not only acceptable in business, but expected. If we then see more rat-like behavior, the blame is partly on us. My second point is that the replacement economy model doesn't seem to me to be the best, uh, take the best Buddhist insights and put them to work. Here I get, I have to say, I'm getting a little bit thinner ice. I've been an economist for a lot longer than I've been a Zen practitioner, and we have total experts here which will now correct me on everything I say for the rest of my, my talk. But as I understand it, Buddhism tells us that, interest, that ignorance, sometimes translated as certainty, is one of the three poisons that adds to suffering. It advises us to keep doubting, keep looking at things with a don't-know mind. I've been trying to encourage you to take a look at the economy as a koan, and perhaps relax some prior beliefs. Buddhism also tells us that one of the basic marks of existence is non-self, or that all phenomena lack any essential nature. Yet the replacement economy story is firmly based on a set of beliefs about the essential nature of capitalism. Releasing those beliefs allows us to recognize that the economy that we're in is emergent and ever-changing, just like anything else. And while try as we might to resist it, the replacement economy model, I think, tempts us unduly towards another of the three poisons, anger. It's very difficult to not be consumed by anger when observing, for example, ExxonMobil's disinformation campaign about the role of fossil fuels to climate, climate change. It's very easy to see ExxonMobil as motivated by greed and our own anger as righteous. Yet we're told that we are also, that we also have beginningless greed, that anger is a poison and that us versus them thinking arises from a deep delusion of separation. So perhaps we can soften around some of this if we recognize that the impetus to positive change can come from both inside and outside of organizations. 
when we engage in activism such as letter writing campaigns, boycotts, and shareholder uh, resolutions, as we should, we could recognize that if change happens, it is likely because we've had inside allies, it's likely because we've had allies inside all along. If we tend to see the people inside the system, especially people inside corporations or the corporate elites, as no more than weak, deluded, role-playing robots, we deny them their humanity. And if we think that they are uniquely motivated by greed and we are not, we deny our own humanity. Greed, we learn in practicing Zen, can come in all sorts of varieties, with the greed for money only being the least subtle one. If you're like me, you not only want climate change to stop, you want child abuse, unemployment, racism, sexism, war, arms trade, nuclear weapons. You want them to all go away. I've long struggled within myself with a sense of personal failure that I've not been able to make any of this go away. And this is tightly linked to a sense of heroic over-responsibility that I should be able to do it all. It came as a great revelation to me when, during Zazen practice, I realized that my desire to be good is in itself another variant of greed. It's not that I simply aspire to do good actions. I have extra desires, demands, really, that I pile on top of that aspiration. I want to feel good about myself. I want to be virtuous. I want to be free of guilt. When I have my desire to feel good about myself front and center, when I'm trying hard to preserve my identity as a good person, it really gets in the way. The requirement that I try to put on the universe, be such that I can be good, separates me from it. So while our hearts yearn to make things better, I think we need to be very careful about how we go about acting on this and keep our actions well informed by Buddhist insights. The replacement economy story has this vision of a new economy. The new economy is supposed to be based purely on principles of sufficiency and cooperation. I'm afraid it strikes me, while it's inspiring in some ways, I think it's, it's more of a distraction. Much as we would love to imagine that we could live in an economy that is infinitely sustainable, equitable, and oriented to true well-being, keeping our eyes on that imagined good economy created by us, the good folks, distracts us from what we need to do here and now. I'm also doubtful about the pragmatic possibilities of the new economy, because so much of the plan seems to me to depend on faith in an inherently redemptive power of small-scale, nonprofit and or spiritually directed institutions. I'm afraid I don't believe that any sort of institution, business, government, nonprofit, local community, or alas, even a Buddhist Sangha, has an essential nature that makes it automatically serve the good. The three poisons are everywhere. Not only that, but Buddha's teaching tells us that suffering and impermanence are fundamental marks of existence. Recognizing these marks doesn't at all mean that we sit on our hands and don't do anything. But I think we want to look twice at a plan that is built 
around imagining an existence without them. So what can we do? I came to Zen hoping that it would make me happy and good and certain about my decisions forever. <laughs> and it hasn't quite worked out that way. But Zen practice is gracing me with something much better. I'm developing a way in which I, without having to become somebody else, can live in this world without demanding that it become something else. I suggest we look into doing this together. Facing climate change, I suggest, is a situation in which we have no hope of feeling good about ourselves. We have no hope of creating that ideal society. Right here is where we are, and only by facing into this reality can we respond. I believe we should aspire to make things better, but not be too rigid about their specifics or be too greedy about having things go our way. I've learned to be suspicious of the thought, if only people would just listen to me and do things my way, things would be so great. We need changes in our hearts, and we need to take these changes out into the world. There's a lot of talk about structural and systemic change, and we do need structural and systemic change, but not at this grand old economy, new economy level. Within any, the global economy, any nation, community, or organizations, there's systems and structures that shape the flows of information, the values, the decisions, and the patterns of activity. This is where we can take action. For people inside corporations, putting together flows of information about environmental and community impacts and working those into structures of decision-making where responsible decisions can be made is something that we can do. We can work with uh, governments, uh, city and national, making regulations, zoning, uh, transportation structures that encourage change. Uh, we need to restructure how we consume, how we commute. Our communities, universities, even our sanghas probably need new systems and structures. In conclusion, while there's widespread certainty out there about the principles and laws that presumably drive our current economy, my invitation here has been to take the economy as a koan and inquire more deeply into what is in fact in front of us. When we do, I believe we can recognize that economies, markets, and corporations, like human individuals or like any other institutions, have no essential nature. They arise contingently, historically, and in deep interdependence. I believe that this recognition opens many possibilities for wise, compassionate, pragmatic, and deeply engaged action in the messy and painful <coughs> world here and now. Thank you. We're going to move now to the next stage of the evening, which will be a, a conversation together, but it will be in two parts. One that is somewhat uh, moderated by my heavy hand, and then the other uh, in which it will be, in some sense, first uh, beginning to give a chance for uh, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi and Dr. Nelson to maybe talk a bit together, but then also people from the 
uh, working group of the religions and the practice of peace to ask questions and to have conversation together. And then after that, to uh, open it up to a more wider discussion of people in, in the audience, all with an aim for us to be done with, within the next hour. Let me just make a few opening comments to start the, this next portion of the evening. I think all students of Buddhism know that much of the power of Buddhist thought, Buddhist thinking, is its ability to re-describe the human person and the world that we live in. I'm still trying to get my mind around seeing myself as a fish that's not aware of the water that it's swimming in. Uh, but we've seen something of that in a more profound way from both presentations tonight. Both Pico Bodhi and Julian Nelson were drawing our attention, re-describing to things that are really quite familiar to us. They were helping us to see, using the Four Noble Truths, using the insights of the model of a Zen koan, different ways of coming to things that we feel we know really quite well what they are. When we see them in a different way, we start to say, is it really what we think they are? You might want to recall, however, for me, in terms of this next portion of the evening, that the Buddha said about himself talking, that he said, I only say things that are true and useful. And that part of what our challenge is, is not only to turn to Buddhist ideas in which we see th true things, but we don't know how they're useful, but to try to force ourselves to say, I want to say things in the spirit of the Buddha, to have things that are both true and useful uh, as a way of leaving the room so we can say, oh, the time is act now, and we can act on things that are useful. I mean, steal in terms of greediness, uh, a joke from Dean Hempton that I heard from him a number of years ago. A different, uh, he has enough jokes, so he won't miss one. <laughs> he was talking about a situation of trying to lead a bunch of us to a different place. And he told an anecdote of an American tourist traveling in, in Ireland, in the west of Ireland. It's an important detail, in the west of Ireland, in which they were lost. And they met some strangers, and they said, can you tell us how to get uh, from here to Dublin? And the person said to them, if I was going to Dublin, I wouldn't start from here. <laughs> <laughs> we have this problem. It's pretty clear where we want to go. Maybe. It might be, in the language of the Lotus Sutra, a magic city that we're making up for ourselves that we need to see through. But we're trying to figure out, how do we get from here? Because if we don't know where we're going and we want to be open to it, we definitely know that we don't want to stay here. So this is a question that maybe comes from uh, the, the Buddhist declaration uh, on climate change, in which it reminded us that we know that personal activities will not by themselves be sufficient to avert future cal uh, calamity. It's not enough for all of us to recycle. It's not enough for all of us to write letters to our congressmen and to vote in primaries. But please do vote in primaries. <laughs> and so this is a place perhaps that we can remind ourselves of something that Pope Francis did in his encyclical, a very striking kind of thing at the end of the encyclical which he said, I urgently appeal then for a new dialogue about how we are shaping the future of our planet. We need a conversation which includes everyone, 
since the environmental challenge we are undergoing and its human roots concern, concern and affect us all. The worldwide ecological movement has already made considerable progress and led to the establishment of numerous organizations committed to raising awareness of these challenges. Regrettably, many efforts to seek concrete solutions to the environmental crisis have proved ineffective, not only because of powerful opposition, but also because of a more general lack of interest. All of us who are inhabitants of institutions of education, we may feel that this very significantly, that somehow we have failed in, in terms of allowing people to hear about uh, what is happening to humans and to our planet, and then to move on with a more general lack of interest. So the Pope then went on, he said, we must regain the conviction that we need one another, that we need a shared responsibility for others and the world, and that being good and decent are worth it. We've had enough of immorality and the mockery of ethics, goodness, faith, and honesty. It's time to acknowledge that lighthearted superficiality has done us no good. And then he said, refers to St. Therese of Lisieux. And he says, she invites us to practice the little way of love, not to miss out on a kind word, a smile, or any small gesture which sows peace and friendship. An integral ecology is also made up of simple daily gestures which break with the logic of violence, exploitation, and selfishness. In the end, a world of exasperated consumption is at the same time a world which mistreats life in all its forms. So I want to ask our two Dharma teachers, can you give us some examples of some small gestures that we can begin to do, small, simple daily gestures, which will help us to break with the logic of violence, exploitation, and selfishness as a way of reminding us that we can get there from here. Now, they don't have to answer this right now, but I'm hoping by the time at least I leave, uh, I know something like that. I also want to give a chance at this point to ask them if there's things that they want to say to each other in terms of what they've heard from each other uh, and to have something of the conversation that the Pope referred to that includes everyone as a way of starting a conversation that includes all of us later here. I think I might come across as an advocate of the what you call the replacement economy. So I would set, set that up as an ideal rather than a project that we could attempt to, <clears throat> to embody in the short run. And I would say that what you call the replacement economy provides certain ideal parameters towards which we should be moving. Um, I also have to say that there's some things about the way you describe the activity, the behavior of corporations that seem to me to be counterintuitive. No, I'm speaking quite seriously. Like, and you mentioned the behavior of ExxonMobil, in fact, exemplifies the way self-interest of a corporation will motivate it to undermine actions which are not merely intended to increase their own profits, but to do so in ways which jeopardize the very existence of human beings and of life on Earth. 
And to take a few other examples, you know, from the past dec decades, the tobacco industry knew that cigarette smoking was contributing to lung cancer, and yet they had paid, employed so-called scientific experts to testify in congressional hearings that there's no link between cigarette smoking and lung cancer, and yet for you know hundreds, maybe thousands, I don't know, tens of thousands of people, maybe even millions of people who lost their lives through lung cancer as a result of that false information, distorted information. I mean, it's far from an innocent matter. I, I, I by no means meant to, to imply yeah. that ExxonMobil's disinformation yeah. was not yeah. an evil and harmful yeah. act. Yeah. But I'm just saying this is like once this and the behavior of the tobacco industries is just two specific examples. Oh, yeah. 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 The, 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 the issue that I have is with generalizing that into a whole mm. nature of a kind of institution yeah. that is then not of the nature of other institutions. Mm. Um, for example, if we think that spiritual values uh, mm. would, you know, institutions based on spiritual values would be better. Well, mm. Boston had the uh, sex abuse scandal in the Roman Catholic Church. That was supposed to be an institution based on good things and did really horrible things. There are sometimes appeals to small scale and community and you know, love as a motivator. And even the family held up as an example of something that's small scale and not based on profit. Women and children get killed, and some men as well, in families uh, every day. So I'm not trying to say that corporate, I'm, I'm not being a Pollyanna about corporations being good. What I'm saying is when they are evil, they are choosing to be evil that it is not something that's automated by the, the system, and that there is no magic lever, some perfect state, some perfect small community, some perfect spiritual value-based institution that's gonna be able to get in there uh, and get control and do things right. If we can't find a perfect lever, I think that means what we need to do is transform all of inst institutions and bring them to task for ratty behavior. Um, and, uh, and take all of the resources uh, that might be available to work there to solve yeah. these problems. You know, one way to control corporations that some of spiritual writers who have sort of commented on the economy that I've read have written about is to advocate what they call the triple bottom line as a guideline for corporations. So the corporations are responsible not only for generating profits, for themselves and for their shareholders, but also that they have to be responsible for protecting and maintaining the well-being of the community, particularly the communities in which they are they're located, mm -hmm. supposing or at least in which the, the offices and the factories of the corporations are located, and also for maintaining a healthy and sustainable environment. Yeah, there are corporations that are yeah. already adopting yeah. uh, triple bottom line yeah. accounting. And that would, I would give out as an example of one of these internal structures or systems. Mm. Mm. You know, it's not just about everybody just suddenly getting nice. I mean, sometimes I'm, mm. if I don't talk about no old economy, new economy, people think mm. I'm just talking about individuals. Mm. There are structures and systems, but the mm. level at which those are, are put on. Mm. So we can think of uh, transform corporations, but they don't necessarily need to have charters that are any different from the charters now. 
It's a transformation that's at a different kind of level. But, it's not but the then it seems to the rely on the goodwill of the, of the leaders of the corporation, which perhaps we can't fully trust. And so if there are some legal mechanisms put into place to ensure that corporations, in order, f in fact, please correct me if I'm wrong, but once a corporation gets its charter, that charter has an indefinite lifespan. If the, the charter of a corporation has to be renewed every three years, every five years, based upon a review of its environmental and social responsibility, then that will put pressure on corporations to fulfill those other responsibilities and not only the pursuit of their profit motivation. Well, I don't think that we can just trust that corporate leaders are always going to do well, but I think we have to hope that they will and not discourage them from doing so by, by giving the out of, well, you know, it's just the nature of the corporation, it's the nature of the system is you have to get the last dollar. The more we reinforce that rhetoric, the more we make it unlikely that leaders will do, uh, do badly. The problem I have, I, I believe we do need uh, a lot of changes in the way we govern corporations. We definitely need to repeal Citizens United, uh, re-regulate the financial markets, the rest of this. But I don't think that we can think of it as, you know, here's the bad corporations and here's the good public sector that's going to come in and regulate these folks. Um, that's, again, looking for one of these perfect levers that's going to come in. And, of course, we know that some of the people we would least like to be regulating the corporations are from the corporations into the government and back. So we, have, well, we don't have that perfect lever. And we don't have that perfect lever we have to uh, allow and encourage uh, the better actions across the board. Maybe we have to bring this conversation back to the problem of climate change <laughs> rather than the functioning of, of corporations. Because, well, one thing that we see is that the co particular corporations which are most endangered as public awareness spreads about the risks, the potential catastrophes of, of increasing carbon emissions are the oil corporations, the petroleum corporations, the coal corporations, and also the natural gas corporations, and also probably the large-scale industrial agricultural corporations. So all of those are the fact that corporations whose very, as they're presently constituted, apart from any kind of regulation, but their very lifeline depends upon extracting the, the extraction and consumption of fossil fuels. So the question then becomes, how does one deal with corporations like that? You know, if they try to develop policies of environmental responsibility, they are putting themselves out of business. <laughs> and so in order to survive as corporations, whether they're maximizing profits or just trying to keep a comfortable profit margin, but to ensure their survival, they have to you know, distort, misinform, and in other ways cover up the realities of the connection between their activities, their mission, and the increase in carbon emissions. Yeah. So that is the I question. Mean, yeah. That's the motivations there. Yeah. But there's also, um, I mean, on the other side, we have insurance companies that are looking down the line at lost property losses from that all the storms exactly true, yeah, who yeah, are yeah. becoming more active in yeah, 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 distributing yeah. the scientific knowledge, bringing yeah. it to public awareness. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, 
again, you know, I, I, I am not at all claiming a, yeah, that there yeah, are not yeah. things that need to change. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then it becomes a battle between who is more skillful in presenting their points of view in order to reach a wider public, the fossil fuel corporations or the insurance corporations. And my guess is that the fossil fuel corporations, I've seen their advertisements on television. <laughs> I haven't seen advertisements on television from the insurance corporations, at least those that are trying to, um, that are in the area of property insurance. But the fossil fuel corporations give very beautiful, convincing, lovely advertisements in which they're explaining how much they're doing to preserve a beautiful and sustainable environment. Yeah, I know it's pretty, pretty awful. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe at this point... And we, and we tend to believe it. I mean, yeah. it's, it, ultimately it comes back to... BP is doing so much to revitalize... <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, this is to revitalize the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's definite greenwashing yeah. Yeah. going on. Yeah. Um, but I... Yeah, my point is that we can't, if, if we assume that anything a corporation does that looks environmentally positive is greenwashing, mm. we have again denied the humanity mm. and the possibilities for change in a whole mm. large and very powerful mm. sphere of activity. Mm. And that's what I don't want to foreclose. Mm. Yep. I think we're going to need everybody on board if we're going to make any uh, changes. <laughs> can't, can't. As the, those of you know who have joined us before for the Religions and the Practices of Peace colloquium sessions, they double as class meetings for graduate students in the Religions and Practices of Peace working group. And so those graduate students have prepared in advance for tonight's session. So in the next phase of the program tonight, the graduate students, faculty, and fellows in the RPP working group will engage our presenters in a period of conversation as a way of opening up things to the other questions and answers from the entire audience. So I want to start by inviting uh, Jeff Sewell and Tajay Bongsa to kick off the general conversation with a couple of questions. So Hamadurovo. Thank, thank you, Professor. I and Melissa will be taking over. <laughs> so, talking about corporations, what we tend to do very often is talk about climate change and give recommendations on what companies, firms, corporations, and individuals should do, almost as if they were isolated actors with super agency, rather than interconnected themselves. So many of them no doubt share some of our aspirations and concerns. Mm. And some of those concerns sometimes contradict with each other. Mm -hmm. And they feel constrained in various ways. Mm. How do we do what, what we do in a way that acknowledges this? In a way, what? That acknowledges the constraints those companies, corporations, and individuals face. So a, that's an observation yeah, for you to react to. Yeah, I'm, 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 um, I guess the, the, uh, the only reaction that comes to mind um, for me is um, um, 
you know, from my Zen practice perspective, I, I, I try to notice when I'm creating a separation between me and somebody else and believing that I uh, can judge what they're doing. <laughs> and for me, there is some um, uh, uh, general helpfulness in realizing that people may have constraints that I don't see uh, in what they do. That's about the only thing I can think of in terms of a response to that. I didn't quite catch the comment or the question. Perhaps if you could just rephrase it very concisely. Uh, yeah, talking about climate change, yeah. we very often say it's the responsibility of corporations, uh, firms, and people who are running the, them, yeah. and that they need to take responsibility. But I wouldn't say that it's only. Yeah, yeah, but they are also human beings. Yeah. Like they have sometimes, let's say, they have families, they have emotions, yeah. and they have a yeah. lot of other things to yeah. Yeah. concern about. Yeah. And when we are telling them that they need to change, yeah. like we are imposing something on them without knowing, without yeah. actually understanding <coughs> what they, are, they might be going through. Yeah. I don't think we are telling them at a personal level that they need to change as individuals. But what we are saying, or at least from my perspective, what we should be saying is that the reliance on fossil fuels as our main source of energy, it's leading to increased carbon emissions, and the carbon em increasing carbon emissions are having such and such consequences, which are destructive to the flourishing of human beings and of all life, on, well, at least most life forms on Earth. And so in order to protect human civilization and to protect other life forms, we have to conceive, envision a transition to a clean energy economy, and then you know, take the practical measures, pragmatic step-by-step -step measures that will facilitate that transition. It's not a matter of you know, singling out the persons at the head of these corporations, but seeing what is necessary for human civilization, human societies to flourish. Thank you. So as has been said, it's really important for everyone to get involved to counter climate change. Yeah. So this hasn't happened yet, so how should we get more people involved in investing in climate change? How to get more people involved or how, for, how do we get more involved? Is no, how to get more people involved who are not yet involved. I'm reluctant to try to go about on to stand on a street on a soapbox on a street street corner and make. Though I've done this actually, <laughs> literally last summer, there's a, a little organization called the Climate Mobilization Movement, which is established by a woman. Her name is Margaret Solomon, based in Brooklyn, and she's actually had a. Her movement has been spreading around the United States, but she had a gathering in New York City. I think it was last June, June 2015, in which we were <laughs> standing literally on soapboxes and making our speeches. 
have to get... Can you answer that one? <laughs> I'll, say, I, I'll, I'll tell you about what one thing that I have, have tried. Um, when I was working for a Global Development Environment Institute at Tufts, we were working on curriculum projects. Uh, as I said, economics teaches all this, a lot of it, bunk, uh, to millions of students you know, across the country. Um, we put together introductory economics textbooks at the college level um, that include a lot of the usual stuff, but treat it as a theory uh, and a particular model as well as, you know, not as the way the world works. And then set alongside, like a, next to consumer theory, we also talk about consumerism and consumer debt and, you know, real world issues of it. Um, one of the innovations that, that I put in there that I, I think is a key one is, is that you're told in economic classes that there are three basic economic activities, production, distribution, and consumption. We added one that comes first, which we called resource maintenance. Very dry name, whatever. But you can then talk about what is going on with the base from which you are doing production, uh, distribution, and consumption. Um, and then you can bring in issues such as climate change into the, the curriculum. I taught from that book one time, and towards the end of the semester, I mentioned to my students that the other books leave that out, and they went, what? How could you leave that out? You know, I mean, raising awareness about our interdependence uh, with the earth in, in a number of different ways can, can help. Would either or both of you comment on the notion of the steady state economy or the no growth economy as we sometimes hear it, uh, hear it discussed or labeled uh, today? And uh, if, if you can also offer as a footnote a sort of, you know, Buddhist slant on that, uh, that idea, I'd be interested in hearing about that. The no growth economy or? Steady state, steady state, state economy, state. yeah. Um, we definitely need to stop the focus on throughput, <laughs> the kind of measures of GDP growth that we have now that are just about, you know, yanking more stuff out of the earth, turning it into stuff and throwing it away as fast as possible. I mean, that is, that is ridiculous. Um, I have a little bit of quibble with some of the, the calling it a, a no growth economy because it really is a matter of a growth in what? A lot of people when they hear no growth, they think, well, we're going to go live in caves and, you know, eat sawdust and, you know. Um, and a no-growth economy that doesn't focus on the throughput can still be one in which there are innovations and creativity and attention to well-being. So I'm not particularly, you know, fond of that particular way of phrasing it, but getting out of this, this high throughput is certainly part of it. Um, just a minor part of that, I mentioned that, you know, attitudes towards uh, consumer and consumption, consumption have changed. So people, People talk about this massive throughput as being, you know, of the, this essential nature of capitalism. Planned obsolescence wasn't invented until the 1930s. The term wasn't even around. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a waffle iron at my house. It was built in 1929 and still works. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are other ways of doing production consumption, even within this. Mm -hmm. um, some economists will tell you that, or some people will tell you that the, the system will collapse. Well, the, the system in some ways collapses about every five or ten years anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, you know, there's no model that says, uh, some people say, well, you have to have a positive rate of interest or profit or something. That's, that's a lot of stuff that's made up. I think we can figure out a way to have uh, an economy that does not, that continues along, gives us well-being, and does not have that, that 
so-called growth mandate. Yeah, maybe one, one factor that sort of contributes to the idea that the economy must constantly grow, and that is the use of GDP as a measurement of the successful economy. So the higher the G GDP rate, then the more successful the economy. But you know, there have been attempts by more progressive economists to devise other measures for the health of an economy, such as the gross ha happiness index. Gret genuine progress indicator. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that we take other factors, including like, even when we look into G GDP, what is generating the GDP? You know, clear cutting forests in order to produce goods that are going to be disposed of at every couple of years is increasing GDP, and yet it's contributing to, you know, it's unnecessary waste. And so if we use factors, and we make this the measure of the health of the economy, the other factors that contribute to the health, to the health, the well-being, the happiness of the people and the population, then that will serve as a deterrent against the pursuit of ever-escalating levels of economic growth. Sort of encourage, I wouldn't call it a no-growth economy, but a growth in a qualitative rather than quantitative growth as the measure of the vitality of the, of the economy. This point to open it up more generally. Okay. Uh, this is working. This is working. Hello. Okay. Um, so I just want to follow along this thread. So I mean, we have an economic system, despite all its negative impacts, highly destructive, but it's. It's also a very highly dynamic system, which is very growth-oriented, profit maximization, et cetera. Um, on the other hand, I think what I find interesting in your talks is that, on the other hand, Buddhism has been sometimes characterized as, um, as, as a religion, which is not necessarily compatible with this type of economic accumulation, right? So for example, um, desire for material want. I mean, so Buddhism is almost, in some, res some respects, has been characterized as kind of the antithesis of economic accumulation, material wants, gro growth, right? So, so life is suffering, so, I mean, des desire, for, for de desire for material wants. So I just want to you know, have you follow on this thread of the compatibility of Buddhist ethics, right? Um, is Buddhism compatible with this type of capitalist economic system, um, or you know, is what you're proposing, are they at odds with each other? Uh, actually, it seems that there are at least two questions there. One is whether Buddhism can countenance and accept the idea of the development of an economy. The other is whether Buddhism is compatible with, say, a corporate capitalist culture. Okay, there's a common mischaracterization of Buddhism, I would say, based on the selection of the monastic model of renunciation and seclusion aimed at liberation, and then overgeneralizing that and taking that to be, well, here comes your essence again, the essence of Buddhism, <laughs> so that one overlooks, overlooks the fact that the Buddha taught to wide range of people in many different lifestyles. And so when the Buddha was teaching to a businessman, he teaches that you should grow and develop your business. Increase the profit, how to develop a successful, profitable business. 
Anguttara Nikaya, Book of the Three, Sutta number 20 is one sutta that comes up. Anguttara Nikaya, Book of the Four, Sutta number 61 and 62. Um, yeah, he's speaking. You can look it up. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure that the numbers are correct. Um, yeah, so when the Buddha is speaking to people in society, he's speaking how they should, what kind of actions they should undertake in order to promote their material, their own material well-being, the well-being of their families, how to produce, how, how to, what are the conditions for the development of a successful, flourishing society which, in which people are united in common purposes, solidarity and harmony. Um, okay, so that is one side of Buddhism, which is often overlooked because of this narrow focus on texts which have a monastic orientation. Mm -hmm. The question whether Buddhism is compatible with global or corporate capitalism, again, this would have to be, corporate capitalism didn't exist in the time of the Buddha, so I can't quote text to, to answer that question. But I would say that what the Buddha would teach is that any kind of business undertaking has to be developed in a way which is compatible with the well-being health and happiness of people in the community, in the world at large. And so if, say, there's a model of corporate capitalism which is proving destructive to large populations, that is not compatible with the Buddha's teaching. If there can be a model of corporate capitalism which is will actually promote the well-being and happiness of people at large, that model would be compatible with the Buddha's teaching. This is one uh, one small thing that someone can do uh, is to buy the seat behind home plate in Fenway Park before the guy who holds up the sign John three sixteen and you can have Ankutra <laughs> Nikaya Book of the Four. <laughs> I would have given the same answer by the way. Yeah. So. <laughs> I have a well, as far as climate warming, I think your presentation was excellent, telling us what, I mean, it's zero degrees, and I'm saying maybe we need climate warming. So I think that you need to get out there and let people know what the real harm is and, and, and in order for people. To, but my, my second question is you talked about altruism, and the concept of altruism, Marxism didn't work because human beings are not altruistic. Yeah. And a lot of people don't care about what's good for the climate. They care about only what's good for themselves. That's human nature. And I'm wondering what can be done about that, or if it's even possible. Um, if I can comment on that a little bit. In, in, uh, in economics, there tends to be this, this dualism. You're either self-interested or you're altruistic. You're you know, either greedy all the time or you throw yourself in front of the bus for the save the child. I mean, it's not that, that simple. Um, there are more interesting work done on this kind of psychology of motivations yeah. and the effect of what we see other people doing. Yeah. And one of the nice little um, summaries I, uh, Howard Margolis uh, invented for this is called Neither Selfish Nor Exploited. As we tend to be cooperative and act in pro-social ways unless we think that we're being exploited and being had, mm -hmm. that other people are you know, out to get us or other people aren't carrying their load. Mm -hmm. um, so there is, and that, that's, a, that's a middle ground that we can work with. If we can build up the feeling that this is something that we can do together, 
It's not that people are going to be altruistic and sacrificial and yeah. join. Yeah. They're going to join because there is a feeling that we mm. can do this. Yeah. They're not going to do it if it's just me doing it and you're not doing it. If we can do it, we can do it. I'm always curious about the missing dimension in any social movement. Arguably, a missing dimension, I think, in this dilemma is what I consider the ultimate renewable energy, joy. <laughs> I think of the color purple when Suge Avery says, it makes God angry when we pass by a purple flower and we don't pay attention. What is the role of joy as a renewable source of energy in this dilemma? Actually, I, 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 I'm kind of just riffing on this now because I remember the whole thing. But a, uh, an interesting thing I read one time that said that we're, it's not that we're too focused on consu consuming. We don't focus on consuming enough. We don't notice what it is we have on our mouth because we're thinking about the next bite. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> that, that, that's a way of turning this on its head. It's not that we're, that we're you know, trying too hard to get joy out of this economy. It's that we're not doing it right. We're not actually looking at the things that... That satisfies. Yeah, maybe I would say to make two comments. One is that as far as like climate action, action on behalf of the climate goes, it's the joy in doing something to protect the conditions for your human flourishing, the joy in that that sustains one and mobilizes one to continue along this track of action, even when there are so many discouraging signs taking place. And the other is I think that if people are able to find that there are other sources of joy or real happiness besides consumption and besides acquiring more and more possessions, that then they will realize that you know, happiness doesn't depend upon acquiring a multiplicity of electronic <laughs> gadgets and material possessions, but that real joy comes from the depths of the mind and from particularly from close relationships with other people, rewarding relationships with other people, and that will serve as an antidote to this constant message that the path to happiness lies through acquisition and possession. Um, I m must tell you I've really enjoyed this discourse. I have a very, very little to comment on. Uh, as the son of the son of the son of James McKinney and son, uh, it's a century of corporations that were always trying to do good. And my companies, all six of them, never made very much money, but we really did do a lot of good. But in, within the context of our concurrent um, discussion, I thought I might add just two quick quotes. One from John Blofeld, who said um, at the end of a lecture, I'm going to give you a, a spell, a magic spell, that will allow you to have practically everything you want go any place you want, to do nearly anything you want, and you can start it tonight. Want less. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the other one was, of course, the joy, as His Holiness once said, to be happy is not difficult. When you make someone else happy, you always get happy yourself. Mm -hmm. Twice the happy, and only half the work. <laughs> Thank you very much for an interesting discussion. Um, I really appreciated uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's uh, acknowledgement of the important role that uh, animal agriculture plays in the climate crisis. 
And I call it animal agriculture because it's not a question of industrial agriculture in point of fact. A cow's very essence is that it's going to produce uh, methane and an animal's very essence is that it's going to produce, uh, it's going to produce dung. And uh, this all contributes very massively to uh, environmental degradation and to uh, climate change. So it seems that in our effort to save our own necks, we're going to have to remedy, rectify our relations with uh, other sentients on this planet, that our relationship has been one of utter and horrendous exploitation uh, for the last 30,000 years since, uh, since human, human homo sapiens colonized uh, Australia and destroyed all the, all the mega mammals, uh, mega uh, marsupials that existed there. So I, I was curious to know, what, what do you see? I mean, how are we going to make restitution for the damage we've done to other species and to the planet? And I just wanted to point out also that somebody asked, well, what can we do about climate change? Well, one thing we could start doing right now and tonight or tomorrow is we could stop eating meat and cheese and eggs, and that would already make a difference. And I mean, you could base a social movement on just that alone, I think. You base a social movement on Just to tell you one thing that I read some time ago, <clears throat> there was, there's a movement called something like Meatless Mondays, is that what it is? Where an advocacy group advocating that people, even if they can't become full-time vegetarian, they at least go one day a week without eating meat. A proposal was made to the US Senate to observe meatless Mondays. One of the political parties, I don't want to mention, <laughs> said meatless Mondays. On Monday, we're going to be ordering double portion steaks for every senator. So um, let me just start by saying thank you. Uh, as a PhD student in the economics department here whose Hi. thesis is on the economics of climate change, oh, I think great. both of your words uh, resonated uh, with me at a personal and a professional level. Um, I was wondering if I could ask you about something that I, I wrestle with on a day-to-day on a -day basis, which is this issue of whether uh, in addressing climate change, we want to be focusing on changing the motivations of the actors within the system mm -hmm. or the rules of the game that they're playing. So let's take the concrete example of the oil companies or the oil industry. Uh, and of course, this is not you know, a mutually exclusive approach, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out where you would put your priorities. Mm -hmm. One approach would be to hope or to chastise mm -hmm. the executives within the company to change their motivations. Yeah. Yeah. Another approach would be to levy a carbon tax, for example, that changes the price incentives within the game that they're playing yeah. in the hopes that they play it in the direction that we, yeah. uh, as a society, would want them to, to move. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I hope I haven't mischaracterized right, either approach, but I wanted to get both of your thoughts on, mm. on whether that's a meaningful distinction, to what extent they are uh, compatible, these approaches, and which you would prioritize. Thank you. I can't prioritize one or the other because I think it is a, it's a, a truly a both and 
kind of, uh, kind of situation going on. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's totally asinine that we don't have a high carbon tax in place, you know, if we had, that we haven't had one in place for the last 20, 30 years. It's not, you know, it does not take us to some kind of ideal economy, but it would be a very effective step one. <laughs> That's, you know, that would be not that hard to do. That all economists agree on, yeah. And I mean, you see these bogus studies that say it'll crash the economy. I mean, it, gasoline is now what, two dollars at the pump? It was four dollars a while back. You know, that would be equivalent, you know, a hundred percent kind of gas tax that did not crash the economy. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's totally asinine that we don't, we don't have that kind of thing. Um, and yet, the idea of doing it, as, think of it as rules of the game and systems and structures that we all work in and that we all have to build and shape. Um, there's a lot of stuff we can do on that. I have a little bit of a trouble. Sometimes it sounds like we need to um, kind of control or get out there with the whip and drive people to some kind of behavior. And that usually doesn't work out so well. Um, so caution about, about that edge of it. Yeah, as for these two choices, again, I come back to the problem that I mentioned in the earlier part of the discussion that is, how does one motivate, say, the executives who are in charge of petroleum corporations, coal corporations, um, natural gas corporations? How does one change their motivations that they'll be doing something which is beneficial to the communities rather than harmful? I mean, I just don't know. I'm not raising this this question ironically, I just don't know whether there's any sense to the very Actually, idea. I, I, uh, I, I, yeah. I, could, I just thought of a, a, yeah. a story I heard that, that relates to this, mm. which was, goes back to tobacco growing, which we also mm -hmm. can agree is a mm -hmm. pretty destructive mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, but there can be a legitimate interest among the tobacco you know, cigarette yeah. manufacturers in the fact that if they close down, a lot of farmers yeah. Yeah. go out. So there yeah. was, I can't remember, yeah. there was a name of a person or a, a company that was founded, but mm -hmm. was someone in tobacco said, what other kind of industries could these people be using this land for? Yeah. 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 And yeah. I think they got into some kind of specialized yeah. production mm -hmm. of something else. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there mm -hmm. are ways of thinking mm -hmm. of how mm -hmm. to creatively, you know, mm -hmm. they, were, they were partly motivated by a legitimate concern yeah. for the employment of people in this industry yeah. and work to try to find a creative way to keep employment going without yeah. it being based on tobacco. Mm. Yeah, of course, there can be ways to transfer the, you know, the whole operation of the corporation to trans change rails, so to speak, from fossil fuels to some other type of clean and renewable energy. In fact, it seems to be the most reasonable choice to make. <laughs> yeah, so um, we're making steps in that area, small yeah, steps yeah, so far, yeah, but steps. Good evening. I want to thank you both for your um, talks and for responding to these questions. I had a question for um, Dr. Nelson with uh, incorporating the concept of a koan to this discussion, and I was thinking of the koan related to medicine and disease cure each other, and uh -huh. how might that koan teach us something about climate change and, and the efforts to respond? How does it for you? <laughs> Why do you bring it up? Um, well, I was talking with my friend about this uh -huh. on our drive here, and I, 
I suppose to me, climate change can be a teacher um, and can teach us something about um, our interbeing um, and ultimately um, about the um, about our weaknesses as well. Mm. But that's where I. St- I start to arc towards, but I was curious to hear <laughs> your uh, your observation. Um, I guess in terms of the the interbeing aspect, um, I've often thought that what the world really needs is a good alien invasion. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, in the movie that always gets humanity to finally, you know, realize that we're all humanity and they're the green little people, and so they're the them, and that we're all the us. And, I thought that was Donald Trump. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a different. Not green, but, you know. But, yeah, I mean, there is something about this crisis that does really demand that we pay attention to, to all of that. Yeah. I was hoping that either of you uh, uh, would talk more about the gender um, part of this topic that you kind of both hinted at a bit. Um, you Gender issues mm-hmm. and sexism and how that kind of works, you, you've both mentioned things like power yeah, and yeah. fear and anxiety yeah. and, you know, it, and then you bring up things such as certain political s- sort of streams in our country that are mm. really somehow threatened by the idea of not eating as much meat, yeah, yeah. right? And, um, and I just wonder whether there's some, a way that both of you have kind of put together theories about your particular religion an approach to nature connectedness, approach to power and nature, you know, a relationship with other kind that's, you know, got a power dynamic to it, and cultural trends you see about nature connectedness and about power in nature and about fear and anxiety and identity and gender. I mean, I could kind of go off on what I kind of think about these things, but I'm not Buddhist, and so I'm, to me it's more interesting to think about how a Buddhist would approach these issues of power, nature connectedness, gender, fear, you know, and how that relates to climate. And do, is that too vague? Do you need me to? How many well, hours more did we? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would. I would. Um, I mean, I, I could give you like five academic articles where I've been exploring this, but not in terms of Buddhism. In terms of of mm-hmm. economics and climate mm-hmm. and gender, and particularly looking around fear and risk. Yeah. That risk, being taking risk and being the hero is kind of this masculine mm-hmm. thing where. Um, preserving and protecting. We've kind of got the, the old woman in the hut in the woods that maybe has this long wisdom, but that's considered retrograde and not, you know, not heroic and out there. I think there's a whole set of mythic images that are very gendered um, that factor in even to economists thinking uh, about climate change. Um, in terms of, of I guess, I, my, my, my Buddhist practice to, to that, I, there's a line in the Heart Sutra with the, um, Without hindrance, there is no fear. I'm, kind of, I'm getting the words wrong. And th- I think that fear is, is something to, to look at. And, I mean, fear is being used up the gazoo with terrorism events and yeah. in the political yeah. process and everything else. It's really being used yeah. to, to make yeah. power grabs. Um, anyway, and that's just kind see, of a rambling Do you see word. strands in Buddhism that help counteract toxic masculinity in our culture that leads toward you know, greater exploitation of, of nature? And do you, are there ways that Buddhism is countering that for men who practice Buddhism that the culture can learn from? 
I mean, I have to admit that there is sort of a deep strand of patriarchy within Buddhism itself, which is being challenged and sort of replaced by more, more feminist ways of thinking of Buddhism. One thing that strikes me, though, is not relating directly to Buddhism, but the reliance upon fossil fuels and the kind of culture that it breeds seems to be relate very closely to that of a masculine mentality, that of you know, dominating the world, stretching our power across the world to grasp the resources buried within the earth and pull them out and utilize them for our purposes, or, you know, and then transforming them into this tremendously powerful type of energy through which we can conquer the, the rest of the world. Whereas relying upon natural, renewable sources of energy has a much more feminine feel, feel to it. It's something which is always accessible, always sort of bearing down upon us like the love of a mother <laughs> for our child. Um, and it doesn't involve that exploitation of, of the earth in order to generate our energy. Now, I'm aware uh, that there are many scarce resources in our world, and one of them is time. <laughs> and I'm in a position, I get to look at a clock on the back of the wall and realizing that other people have other commitments and the day goes on. So I just wanted to bring this part of the evening to a close. I just something that came to me during the, the night, particularly when Bhikkhu Bodhi showed as part of his presentation the ecological noble eightfold path, the way to save the earth and, re, and not only just save the earth, but redeem human civilization too. Reminding me of a sign that I used to love that was on the Harvard School of Design wall that I would think about it every time I went by that said, it's a big job, that's why we're doing it. <laughs> Climate change is a big job, that's why we're doing it. But perhaps in the, the spirit of tonight, we're going to go and see if the sign is still there and put some graffiti on it and say, <laughs> it's a big joy, that's why we're doing it. <laughs> so, let me now just turn the, the closing of the evening over to Dean Hempton for the final thanks and a few announcements. So thanks to our uh, speakers uh, um, very much and to our questioners. Um, um, just a few um, uh, concluding announcements. So we'll have our reception in the lobby until nine, so there's just no end to the joy that's on offer. Um, uh, so feel free to uh, come uh, uh, and, and enjoy that. Um, in the spirit of um, a small corporation, the Harvard Coop will be selling books in the lobby in case you'd like to Pick up a copy. Um, uh, there's a Buddhist response to climate change emergency, um, uh, to which um, uh, 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 Venerable Bhikkhu uh, Bodhi has contributed. Um, a, a book by uh, uh, Dr. Julian Nelson on economics for humans, um, and Pope Francis' encyclical on climate change, all available. By popular demand, we're now listing online readings recommended by the guest speakers for each session, so you can become truly educated. So please visit the RPP's new website for those uh, readings if you'd like to take your um, um, uh, knowledge uh, uh, onto another level. And if you haven't done so, be sure to um, sign up for the RPP mailing list to, achieve, uh, to receive announcements of upcoming events. So please do that. Our next session in March will be on transforming racialized divides in the United States. 
So um, uh, uh, we expect this will be a great session again. Hope you can join us for that. So uh, just look, uh, put that in your calendars. So um, uh, uh, that's all the announcements. I just want to thank uh, again our uh, wonderful speakers. For, uh, 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 thank uh, uh, Charlie Hallisey for moderating. Thank you all for coming and do um, uh, go to the lobby and eat some more things. At all. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs>